0: Starts now. I'm Scott Santucci.
1: I'm Brian Lambert, and we are the Sales Enablement Insiders. Our podcast is for sales enablement leaders looking to elevate their function, expand their sphere of influence, and increase the span of control within their companies.
2: Together, Brian and I have worked on over 100 different kinds of sales enablement issues as analysts, consultants, or practitioners. We've learned the hard day, hard way, not hard day. See, this is all part of the process. We've learned the (laughs) hard way what works and perhaps what's most importantly, what doesn't.
1: And our focus here on this podcast, Inside Sales Enablement, is on you as a sales enablement leader and orchestrator. As you know, sales enablement orchestrators have very specific characteristics, and I'm going to share those with you now. First of all, your mission and goal focused. Uh, you've prioritized the right goals at the right moments, you guide the narrative by confronting reality to get the right stuff done, you drive results by design not by effort, you unlock energy to create momentum and catalyze change through collaboration. Those are the six attributes of an orchestrator and you can find out more about that on an earlier episode on orchestrators. As we usually do we're going to start with a centering story on this particular episode. So Scott, what kind of centering story do you have for our audience today?
2: Well, I've got a great one. So I, I first want us to dwell on how cool this name is. Okay? Uh, and how awesome the Italians are at naming people.
1: Yeah. Go figure, <laughs> says the Italian. It,
2: well, I don't have the, Scott as an Italian name. Like, I just have the last, I'm, I'm half right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but listen to this name. Vilfredo
1: Pareto. Oh, it's nice. Poetic, isn't it? Yeah, it's very nice. Uh, okay, I've properly dwelled on that. So let's move it, on. It, it's very elegant. <laughs> uh,
2: so, who is this person, and why are we talking about uh, uh, about him? Uh, but as you, as you, many of you may know, you might know this idea of the eighty twenty rule, and the eighty twenty rule uh, is, is also called. Pareto analysis or Pareto distribution, or he's got a lot of other, of other things. And, and many people call him the father of microeconomics. So if you look at economic theory like uh, Adam Smith and you read it, it sounds like, oh, this is uh, like a sociology book. Um, and then when you look at, um, or philosoph- philosophical book, when you look at uh, Pareto's works, It looks more modern he's got tons and tons of tables and statistics and things in there and one of the things that that he really observed is in trying to figure out distribution of power and distribute you know where power really resides he was caught up in a lot of the revolutions uh in in europe during the during time so let's let's frame it out uh he was born in 1848 and died in 1923 so you can imagine there's a lot of turmoil and he's italian uh, so, you, if if you know about Italian history, uh, they didn't. Um, they, they started the process of revolutions after the Civil War in the United States, so the 1860s and and and, uh, and on. And making these observations about um, getting in, in big problems and and um, arguments with the um, uh, with the governments, the local governments about what things needed to do because he was a very very much a laissez-faire or, or classic liberal uh in, in those senses not not what we would call today a liberal uh, definitely if we called him today he'd probably be very conservative or, or probably a libertarian but the the, the the key observation that he made that was so groundbreaking was that he found that 80 percent of the wealth or not so much the wealth but 80 percent of the land owned in italy was owned by 20% of the population. And he had to keep double checking that. And what he found is that pattern uh, pa- That pattern is a reoccurring pattern. And you've heard us talk about that pattern before in some of the other podcasts that we've done because we found that pattern exists with salespeople. About 20% of the salespeople are generating 80% of the new growth. About 20% of your customers are generating 80% of your profits. All of these things work. And th- th- we have... Uh, Vilfredo Pareto again the poetic name to um to thank thank so that's you that's our centering story
1: thank you Vilfredo Pareto I just wanted to say <laughs> I'm, that
2: Vilf- I'm on the yeah the, I'm the <laughs> Vilfredo Pareto fan club
1: <laughs> so I gotta ask Scott and uh our listeners do too so what so what right. does this have to do with sales enablement <laughs>
2: So what this has to do with sales enablement and our topic today is that uh, there's a, one of the things that uh, we tend to do and drive a lot of costs is we do a lot of activity. We do lots and lots and lots of stuff, but a lot of stuff, are we doing the right things? And how do we figure out there's a, there's always a mathematical element. If we embrace it, most of us don't embrace these things because they, you know, it's just far too easier to say, well, let's go fix the sales force. Instead of saying, let's find the 20% of the sales force to improve. And what can we do? And really what we're talking about here is the introduction of systems thinking. And when we talk about that, as you all on our, on our show have, uh, have adopted that you want to be orchestrators, part of what we're trying to do is highlight the business value of being an orchestrator or the business problems that we're looking to solve. So that's why this matters so much, this centering story. And the topic that we're going to do is, so what is systems thinking? Is it some uh, new age idea that we have to have a crystal and, you know, hug trees over? Or is it something real and something tangible?
1: Yeah, I love that. And to help us with this today, we've got an expert in the space joining us. His name is Jerry Brightman. Uh, He is a bright man. So we're going to have him help us (laughs) with this topic. Yeah, uh, you you've got him. I do too. And, and Jerry's a great guy. I've learned I've learned a lot from him over the last twenty years. I met him uh, when I was first coming out of the of the military, and and he was in program and project management. He's done some great, fascinating work in industry uh, all over the world. He's been to a hundred different countries. But right now, in in his phase of of what he's doing, he's he's a professor at Tufts and at Harvard. And Jerry, one of the things that that, that I, I was uh, reconnecting with you around was I saw on LinkedIn you had posted this really cool post about teaching this really interesting class uh, to to folks at Harvard. And that class was on systems thinking. So I reached out and I said, hey, our listeners are asking about this. They're also, you know, quite frankly, pushing back on Scott and I a little bit uh, around some of the topics and and wrestling with them. I said, let's get Jerry on and let's ask him some questions that perhaps our listeners might have and uh, explore this topic of, of systems thinking. So Jerry Brightman, thanks so much for joining us here on Insider Nation. Um, my pleasure, you. thank
3: you very much for having me.
1: You bet, can you share a little bit about your background that maybe I've missed?
3: Well, it, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very diverse background, but it does, it does have a way of connecting dots. I started out as a very um, young guy who went to school seemingly forever, getting an undergraduate, Uh, an MBA, and then even a DBA, Doctor of Business Administration, and then guess what? Teaching at a university. And uh, out in Western Michigan University in the wilds of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, I I was asked to teach an off-campus course in Grand Rapids to uh, real live working business people uh, in that area. And it was very quickly known to me in, in the moment that I was a fake The only advantage I had over these people who were working all day and going from an MBA in the evening was they were actually doing business. And I had an advantage of being one chapter ahead in the book. And I realized that I I love the teaching. I really love being in front of students, graduate students, real practitioners of business every day. Uh, But if I was going to be helpful to them, I had to quit teaching and get into the business world. And I was very fortunate to join a a global chemical company uh, for about a dozen years. wound up being the very first uh, company ever to do business in the People's Republic of China. And during that period of time, I was uh, very lucky, along with my CEO, to be pioneers in the trade with China, being the very first to go to China. And um, without any knowledge of the the country, of its history, of its culture, of its ways of negotiating, even its currency and contracts, uh, we wound up doing a billion dollars worth of two-way trade with China, a country we didn't know at all. And so what were the tools of our trade? Uh, and one, of, one big one was, was thinking more systemically about the work we were doing.
2: Excellent. So to kick us off, well, I'm going to ask you two pretty basic, straightforward questions. And I'd like some you know, basic, straightforward answers uh, from you, Jerry. So the first question I want to ha- ask is,
3: systems thinking, is that a thing? I wish it were more of a thing. I think that uh, real leaders around the world would would benefit systems thinking as an addition to their toolkit, especially in the areas of decision-making and seeing the the broader interrelationships and interconnections of their their own work staff and their own people and the people that they try to do business with. So it's very real. It's just not seen by many people, quite honestly.
2: Interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is that... um... It's a very real thing, just a lot of a lot of people aren't taking advantage of it.
3: And and frankly speaking, it's not unlike the quality movement years ago, uh, uh, which was a real thing. And and uh, however, people picked the low hanging fruit, expected great results, and didn't do the work behind it to make it real. So well, and also too, wasn't
2: that wasn't that true that it was a real thing in Japan, and it wasn't yeah. a real thing in the United States, and our our car uh our our auto manufactured cuppers got slaughtered and then they adopted
3: it well dr Deming was was preaching loud and clearly in the united states and people didn't listen to him so he said the hell with you guys i'm off to japan and those folks loved it embraced it and that's why the japanese car makers for over a decade were such a, a fierce competitor to the united states and uh uh, but we, we expect quick results. We're a country that wants quick results. And uh, I think systems thinking un- similar to the quality movement is somewhat counterintuitive. It takes time to implement. It, it takes time to understand it. And it, it, it does work miracles in, in our sense of we ignorant people going to China for the first time knowing nothing, doing a billion dollars worth of two-way trade in a wide range of areas. And even even developing our own consulting firm that helped American and European firms uh, understand what the China business was all about.
2: So I love that. So that gives me my second sort of blunt instrument question. My second question is, so if systems thinking is a thing, what is it? What is it? What is this stuff? What is systems thinking?
3: Yeah. There's a very great quote by Albert Einstein so I want to bring in Einstein to prove that I'm a professor, right? So <laughs> gonna, you can't do better than quoting Albert Einstein, right? And Einstein says that the problems we face today cannot be solved with the same level of thinking that existed when the problem began. Time has is, time is gone very quickly from the start of that problem to the present time. So what, he's, what Einstein is saying, pretty simply and down to earth, is we've got to change the level of thinking that we have today to deal with that older chronic issue. And systems thinking is a wonderful, wonderful way to do that. Uh, the, the big thing that, that executives have to do is they have to change their thinking. They have to change where they're coming from, change their, their level of thinking, just like they had to do with the quality move. And you know, let's face it, habits are hard to break. I've got young kids who still have habits that they started when they were four years old, three years old. So habits are tough to break. If they can break the habits and open up their minds to new ways of thinking, systems thinking will be a valuable tool to their leadership, guaranteed. So
2: are you saying systems thinking is like a mindset thing? Why don't I do yoga or why don't I do meditation? What do you, what do you mean, man? There's a, you
3: want, uh, I'm not going to quote Einstein anymore, but- uh, <laughs> My, my buddies at a corporation that I worked for for a number of years had a very interesting word called metanoia, which, which is, called, did the definition of metanoia is shift of mind. So yeah, I, I, uh, they don't necessarily have to do yoga, but I, I you know, I, you won't believe this, but I start all my Harvard classes with the required reading called uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness by Thich Nhat, uh, who was a Vietnamese monk, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize then by Martin Luther King. And mindfulness is just understanding the world around you and being truly present. It, it's not a uh, way out, it, it's just a consciousness of what's happening around you. And uh, for some reason, I, and I usually get classes of, of 30 people from 18 to 20 countries, ranging from uh, uh, Europe and the former Eastern Europe to China and, and Asia. To Latin America and it seems to be a common thread it attracts them to the idea of systems thinking they have to be present which they are both in the class and when they leave me I, I keep in touch with them for, for many years it connects the diversity of people to, to a common way of thinking which is systems thinking that we do in our class. So um,
2: I'm gonna ask uh, or, or challenge you a little bit here I'm trying to channel some of our maybe more traditional thinkers, thinkers in our audience. And I'm putting myself in the situation advocating for systems thinking. I would get C, it's just crystals and uh, healing. That's what all yoga is. How would we describe it to be more concrete? And what, maybe what do you teach, uh, teach your students in your class? Like in, in, in your class that you go through, I, I love that you're starting out with, hey, hey you got to be more open minded to be able to embrace some of these concepts. And I like that you brought up counterintuitive, but what's the meat on the other side of all the counterintuition? A lot of people just don't like all that anxiety or ambiguity of getting, getting to the point.
3: Um, but what they, what they don't like more than that are the chronic issues that they face in their everyday business world. And when I say chronic problems, I mean problems that they thought they had solutions for that six months later come back and rear their ugly head. And the reason for that is uh, the busy pace of business today, and it's going to be even busier tomorrow, is executives think like managers. They have to-do lists. And the greatest achievement of their day is knocking off their to-do list, right, and, and go to tomorrow. So quick fix becomes a very valuable rep a tool in their repertoire. However, and, and actually quick fix has a good place in systems thinking. However, it doesn't get to the root of the problems. And that's why six months later these chronic problems come back and bite them in the leg and they're stuck. Why we had a great solution for it. Well you didn't have a great solution. You had a quick fix that knocked it off your to-do list and, and now you gotta come back to it. So Just kicked it down the can kick the can down the road. Kick the can down the road. So the so the the attraction to not only my students, but my clients is, so you're going to tell me, you're going to sell me a bill of goods, maybe. All right, let's be cynics here. Yep. Um, you're going to sell me a bill of goods that's going to get my chronic problems solved so it stays solved. And I look them straight in the eye, um, maybe from the back of a snake oil Wagon, I don't know. Back I of, you
2: go. Yeah, I think we should adopt like it's a yoga studio. You're in the back of a yoga studio teaching me how to like exactly. Um, kumbaya. You're gonna make me stretch. It ain't,
3: but it, but uh, but it's gonna make your problem, chronic problem, go away. And uh, so here's here's the deal. Here's here's the way your audience is working today around the world. No matter who your clients are, they're working at three levels. One is. At an event level, and so if you picture a um, an iceberg, okay. So picture an iceberg in your mind. The very tip of the iceberg is working at an event level. So I ask my clients and my students, how many of you are problem solvers or put out fires? And ninety percent of the ninety ha- percent of the hands go up, and they say ninety percent of their time is occupied putting putting out fires and solving problems. So I, of course play the jerk in the room, right? And I say, so let me get this straight. You're sitting in your office, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for the phone to ring with a problem. And then you can jump and and be that problem solver, Or you have your fire extinguisher ready to go and put out the fire. And by the way, one of my friends once said, beware of firefighters, Uh, (laughs) they become arsonists. (laughs) They set fires to show how good they are putting them out. So I say, how much of your time is spent firefighting and putting out problems? 90% 90% and yeah. let me ask you a question is this reactive or proactive oh it's reactive you have to have the problem first so let me let me your clients your people who are listening to this podcast are saying well, wait a minute we're good people we've learned how to put out these the fires and solve problems you're saying that that's not good I'm saying no we need problem solvers we need firefighters but you're spending 90% of your time doing that what a waste of time of talent right? So let's get to the next level on this iceberg at the water level. And that's what we call trends or patterns. So let's say, for example, that the last five years, we were short of our widgets in, in October, November, December. And next year, because we're so brilliant, we're going to make more widgets in January, February, and March to uh, to solve that problem at the end of the year. Is that proactive or reactive? And here's where the, where the class goes, uh, uh hmm, hmm, uh, It's really reactive as well, because who's to say that the the next year, year six, is going to be the same as year five? And if we did it during the oil crisis and we we, um, budgeted for a dollar a gallon of oil and said, all right, we're going to be really smart. In the sixth year, we're going to budget a buck and a quarter and it goes to five dollars. You're dead meat, right? So now that's another five percent. So 95 percent of the world today is reactive. Systems thinking goes beneath the level of the water into what we call the structural level. And I could I could spend an hour talking about structural elements, but I'll, I'll limit it to things like hiring, firing, uh, what's our vision, where, where are we going? And one of the most insidious structural elements in, in any organization are the mental models or assumptions that we have about our customers and about ourselves. And most of the time, we're fooling ourselves. We don't do the work to find out who they are. and. That's the beauty of systems thinking. Those things that are in the structural level in any organization that you guys do work for or, that, or consult for, they have rules about how we hire, how we fire, who gets a raise and who gets a bonus and who goes where. And we think that they were made by a higher power. But the fact of the matter is they were made by human beings. And if human beings develop these structures and made these structures, structures, human beings can change them. But they but they're spending ninety five percent of their time reacting, whereas the level beneath the level of the water at the structural level is proactive, and that's where the leader lives.
1: Yeah, I love that. And Jerry, one of the, so on that, building off of that, you're hinting at that there's there's uh, structural elements, and also um, we've got this idea of perspective and mindset, and you're also outlining that there is there is this proactive side. Where leaders could probably and should probably be spending their time. So, does system thinking help there? And then, if so, is that is it an approach, like a strategic approach, or is it like a science? Is systems thinking a science?
3: Yeah. So, one quick visit back to that um, uh, image of the iceberg, and you're right, Brian. That's where the leader lives. And the deeper he goes, he or she goes down in that uh, iceberg, the more leadership leverage they have. So is it a science? Peter Senge, an MIT professor who wrote a phenomenal book on, uh, uh, on systems thinking called The Fifth Discipline. And, you know, Brian, a, a good management book, a bestseller, is one that sells 10,000 copies.
1: Senge's book has sold well
3: over a million copies. And, yeah, uh, and
1: After you read that book, you'll never think about rubber bands the same way again. You got it. <laughs> so get it. tell us about that. Like, so you're hinting at that it's a science. What are some of the scientific components of, well, of systems thinking? So,
3: so what I would call scientific components, and, and there is a, a very qu- quantitative element of systems thinking that gets into computer modeling, and I don't go there. But I will say, instead of scientific components, I will use the word archetypes, or and an archetype. An archetype definition is a common story. So wouldn't it be great to have a common story or an archetype that fits all products, all countries, all technologies in the same box? And, and people in my classes look at me, okay, you're crazy. Now you're selling the snake oil again. So let me give you one, that I, the, one archetype of, of maybe 20 or 30 archetypes that I use all the time. But I'm going to start with a quick story, if you will allow me to tell a quick story. Is it OK? Absolutely. We, we love stories. All yeah. right. So you're watching CNN. And, and for the first time in three months, instead of talking about the pandemic, we have another tragic story. And you're watching Wolf Blitzer talk about starvation in Somalia, right? And on day one, uh, he, he turns it over to his, his uh, reporter in the field. And what do you see? Brian and Scott, jump in! You're going to be my
1: students for a minute. They're going to see starving kids in Somalia, Africa. Yeah. So the the reporter and make it real. Yeah. So so what he says
3: is is uh, Wolf, we've got a terrible problem here, and the camera pans all around the reporter. And what do you see in the image on CNN at that moment about starvation? Starving people. And what do starving people look like? They have
2: uh, bugs on them.
1: They have bugs Very on them. Skinny. Very skinny. Very skinny,
2: but fat bellies. They're I mean, begging. Yep. The they have their hands balance. out this way. And exactly. Sad. Very sad. How do you
3: how do you feel when you see that image? I feel sad, and I want to donate money. So that's terrific. Day two. Wolf Blitzer still is not talking about the pandemic. First, he's talking about Somalia. But we see something different on the screen on day two. What do we see? We see report. We see people, men and women in suits, in front of microphones saying. This cannot be allowed to stand. We, the rest of the world, are going to bail out Somalia. On day three, what do you see?
1: Helicopters.
3: The UN is there giving out stuff. That's right. You see planes going into Somalia. You, uh, don't get too cynical and talk about food riots quite yet. But you see the food being delivered. <laughs> you, you see happy faces. And, and now, Scott, how do you feel versus how you felt three days ago? Way better. I'm ready well, for ch- my next story. We can check story. that well, off. We can check that off the list and move on. Exactly. So, what do you see on day four, based on that
1: comment, Mr. Bryan? Uh, ne- the next one. You, you see know? nothing. You go we back. See, to see the nothing pandemic, on pandemic. this one. Yeah. Problem well, solved. Problem solved. Yeah.
3: Check it yeah. off your to-do list. Yeah. Six months later, you're tuning in and it's still talk about the pandemic, but Wolf interrupts and says, "Guess what, folks? Starvation in Somalia." So. But wait, yeah. d- doesn't he need like uh, Bono to advocate it first?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I hear the <laughs> there
1: are four the people
3: Clooney. <laughs> right. Right. So now let's go back to this notion of archetypes. So I'm going to put that story that I just told you in an archetype, a very simple archetype. So picture for a moment three boxes, one one kind of on top of the other. Okay, on the left with one box way to the right. We're going to start with the middle box, and we're going to we're going to call it problem symptom in three words or less. So come on, Scott. I know you're, you, you, you're good with words, but think of three words or less that will describe that situation in Somalia. Desperate. Desperate. That's good. Um, so no, that's fine. Desperate or starvation in Somalia, three words or less. Now let's go to the box above that, which is called quick fix. And what happened during the quick fix? What happened in the story? Helicopters. We sent in helicopters and yeah. planes with, with, with excess food. A wonderful humanitarian. Scott, you felt very happy when you saw that happening. Yes. But wait a minute. In this archetype or the science, whatever, however you want to call it, Brian, I'm, I'm good with any term you want to use as long as it works. Now on the right-hand side, we've got unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. Jerry, you're telling me there's unintended consequences of this wonderful humanitarian act? Well, guess what? There are
1: and what may they be you guys are bright you you can be in my Harvard class next. well you put a band-aid on it and it just you haven't fixed the uh, food shortage you just put a band-aid on it so the people with
2: guns show up and kit all the food
1: yeah and they Mm -hmm.
2: ration it out
1: and then now they have a power base and you can eat one day but what about the other 364
3: yeah, Brian, you're heading to the fourth box, you're so, you know. Oh, I'm know sorry, like I'm running ahead of class. I, I hear, I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're shooting hard for the A in the class. I know you, I've met you before. So you're not getting the A quite yet, you've got to stop at unintended consequences. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to see if you can really ace this quiz, right? So so question number one, um, what happens if you're a farmer in Somalia and all the food is coming in for free?
1: Oh, yeah, well, you're out of business, or you don't have a market.
3: Yeah, so you do yeah. what you go where your brother, your cousins, your uncles go, and you go into the city. So what about the drought or the starvation next time with fewer farmers?
1: Yeah, it's worse. It's worse, Definitely, right? definitely worse. Yeah.
3: So now you've got a multiplier effect, right? What about the price of food in Somalia when when it goes down, down? because oh. the food coming in is for free, right? So anyone in a marketplace trying to sell food. They're out of business, too, because the food is coming in for free. So now, Brian, to get the A in the course, I'm going to go to the fourth (laughs) box. And the fourth box is fundamental choice. Now, I'm betting Scott and Brian are not agronomists or work for the uh, Women in Development or Areas in Development or AID, Agency for International Development. Uh, But what do you think would be a more fundamental choice to the illusion, Brian, that you were giving to the biblical uh, saying, you know, te- give a man a fish and he's not right. hungry for that day. Teach him to fish, and it, it'll never he'll never go hungry for a
1: lifetime. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what, what we'll you want to be- do is you want to, and, and there are some organizations that do figure out how to make the food supply work in that situation, but it's a long-term play. Exactly.
3: Know? So, it, Scott, we we could we could throw out a lot of ideas now. We could say bring in. A, a wonderful irrigation system, a modern irrigation system from the US or from Europe or from Israel, whatever. Uh, we could say, let's, uh, let's bring in insect repellent seeds. Let's move the population. All right. Now we're getting into real policy issues and so forth. But here's the beauty of this archetype and, and the heart of systems thinking, right? Uh, Brian, you're absolutely right. We put a Band-Aid on it. That's for the quick fix. But I said earlier, the quick fix, let's not dismiss it so quickly. And I want you to listen very carefully to these words. I've said them so many times, they're scripted in my brain. So forgive me for being Dr. Brightman for a minute, but let me, let me say it anyway. The quick fix in service of the fundamental choice is a good thing. Because in that short period of time that we bought through the quick fix, we saved lives, right? We haven't done anything yet to change the structure at that mm-hmm. system at that structural system below the surface of the iceberg we've done nothing but we have brought in food and supplies to help people from starving so the quick fix in service of the fundamental choice a good thing yeah however the flip side of that is every time we default to the quick fix we atrophy the potential to ever use a fundamental choice and that's a problem with leadership today the, the quick fix in a complex world works because the problem has gone. At least we think so for five or six months until it rears its head in, in being a chronic issue. But, and so the two points of leadership versus management, and there is a difference, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at that second box, the quick fix, that's where the managers excel. And that's where project managers excel. They're terrific because in a very short period of time, They've gotta figure out where the excess food is in the United States and around the world. They've gotta bring in those helicopters and planes and and they do it masterfully, right? They find out who's gonna pay for the gasoline, they get the invoices out, and those planes go to solve that problem within a day or two, right? It's fabulous. But the problem still exists and that's where it becomes a leadership issue, right? At the bottom of those four squares, the fundamental, that's where the leader lives, right? And he's not, he or she is not in the spotlight anymore. They've got to do the tough things. They've got to figure out the long-term budgets. They have to think about how do we change the government. That's why we have to figure out our supply chain. Are we making food in the wrong places in this country? Maybe we have to move the people. Maybe some people have to die. These, these are matters of life and death. So the managers live in the quick fix Leaders live in, in trying to de- decide the fundamental choices. So is it a science? In a way, you might want to call it a science, because this archetype that I, I even though I, I gave you the story of, of uh, starvation in Somalia, you give me a chronic problem, and I swear I can use this archetype to come to a fundamental choice and a solution that gets rid of that chronic issue for the long term, so it stays solved. And that's my speech for today.
1: <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it so um this is great and i I love the the mental model right that's uh, one of the concepts that you introduced here is there's a a mental model approach that you can take to these complex problems and also you're connecting a lot of dots right this idea of leadership what's the difference between leadership and management we call that being heroic and we have some podcasts around that we also have this idea of analysis versus synthesis where um in in system thinking you're, you're connecting a lot of dots. You're synthesizing all these things into the best possible uh, decision. Whereas analysis is about breaking these things apart. We had that on an earlier uh, podcast as well. So in that, in that if you, for our listeners, Jerry, what would you say uh, they need to do in order to understand this a bit more uh, and start applying it in, in what is uh, a sales and marketing complex problem, much like what you've outlined here today?
3: Well, you know, you know that, again, Brian, you raised a wonderful term that I that I love because it it's, it causes a lot of problems and it can get us out of problems, which is mental models, right? Uh, the folks that you're dealing with have an idea of what sales is and what marketing is. And when I started in my business career, uh, I was facing three tremendous competitors, Roman Haas, Bayer, and Sumitomo, who made the same exact product that I did. So I figured... By daint of my wonderful personality and my minimal knowledge of the chemistry and science behind this, I'm going to go to the marketplace and, and defeat these three giants. And I didn't. I failed miserably because of the mental model that I had about marketing and sales. And the difference between marketing and sales is sales starts with a product. That's exactly where I started. And I said, our product is terrific. And my customers in Latin America and throughout Asia said, can you give me a lower price? No, I couldn't. It was a commodity. Can you send it to us any faster? No, it goes by ship. Is it more effective? It was a herbicide for rice. Does it kill the rice better? No. And then the fourth and most impressive question was, why the hell do we need you? <laughs> and, right. and I started thinking after my fourth or fifth failure in my fourth or fifth country that, you know, the academic womb ain't a very bad place after all. And I'm going to go back to teaching, except, I think by the sixth country I went to, I began to lose my voice. So instead of using my mouth, I, I, I used my ears, and I began to listen. And people, asked, people told me different ways to, to um, change the packaging of the product, to present the product, to ship it faster. And my customers gave me the best ideas ever to compete with Roman Haas, Sumitomo, and Bayer. And uh, I learned the difference between marketing and selling was That selling started with a product, whereas marketing started with a customer. And I became a hero. And I I defeated those three giants in this giant uh, giant, uh, David and Goliath kind of scenario. So again, the, the clients that you have, that I have, we've got to question their mental models, their assumptions about how they're actually marketing their products or selling their products and the difference that exists between them. And I think systems thinking can do that too. It challenges your assumptions. And I used to work at the Center for Creative Leadership. They just came out with a brand new study a month ago saying the key to fabulous and successful leadership is self-awareness. And none of us, and I say this in front of my class with all humility, none of you guys and me, your esteemed professor, are as self-aware as we need to be. Secondly, another discipline that he talks about is coming up with a shared vision. And too many companies have beautiful murals in their waiting room, in their offices, that they spend $20,000 worth. The fish are our customers, and here's the ecosystem. It's BS. We have to come up with a vision that's real. Uh, and it's not what the vision is, it's what the vision does. And, and that's essential to any good business. We talk about teamwork, and, and we, we have all these uh, funky things. We go out to the woods, and we, that's not what it is. How do we learn together? And I use as learning the word, the synonym create. How do we create together? And that was our secret to success in terms of China. We met every morning at eight o'clock to all the communications that came out overnight. Uh, and we, we dove into those problems systemically. We had answers to our colleagues back in China who were on a 12 hour time difference. And they became heroes. We became heroes through this, through the work of learning in teams, um, challenging and changing our mental models. And, and your job as a leader is to surface what's the origin of that assumption and to make it less of a hindrance in your work. And that's why I said all this work around systems thinking is um, it goes against the grain. We want answers quickly. And, and, and that's going to be one of the stumble. That's going to be a mental model right there, Brian, that's going to trip us all up in our work. We checked off all the things on our to-do list. We're done. We're heroes. We're not, we haven't gotten to the, you know, the, the biblical thing that you talked about before about, teaching people to fish rather than just eating a fish for a day.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love it. Self-awareness, shared vision, creating together, challenging mental models. That's and then systems is. thinking. And systems thinking, thinking wraps them all up together. Gotcha. Well, Jerry, that's been, that's amazing. I appreciate you uh, bringing us into class on this podcast and understanding the, um, the, the actual attributes or what it looks like to be a little bit more holistic and engineered in our approach to uh, these complex challenges, right? A lot, I used to say to people, and they didn't like me, me saying it, but I, I, I said, look, the challenges that we have right now are more complex and complicated than they were in the past. A lot of the easier problems have been solved. It's now really about leadership and tackling some of these broader systemic issues that, that you may be inclined to say, look, it's not my job. Well, to you know Scott's point on on the webinars that he he often has is well, if not you, then then who else? Who's going to do it? You know. Let That's, me just
3: interrupt one last yeah. thing, Brian. You are so spot on. Uh, again, my buddies at the Center for Creative Leadership just came out with another study that that said the, the days are gone when we can go to our HR professional and say what what book should I read next? What class should I take? Right. Who, who should I? And so the the HR people are saying, you've got to figure it out for yourself. So the question then becomes, how do I know what I don't know? And that's where people get stuck. And one great direction that, that I urge you guys as consultants to do is is have them think a little a little bit more about s- systems thinking. They will become the leaders of their organization if they embrace this as, as not the end all and be all. I don't want to sell it this way, but I want to say it's an adjunct to the all the other decision making tools you have because none of the problems you know. I used to fight with the Project Management Institute, the PMI, the Pmbok guy. They you know they always say lessons from experience, right? The the, the only problem I have with that is who's to say that the problem you're working on now is identical to the lessons you've learned from the prior project. And it may be just totally different. So that's why you've got to look at the structural issues that are impeding your progress in project management and and in your consulting work.
1: Yeah. I love that. Now we're going to have to have you back on on another episode (laughs) to talk about uh, these because, uh, I think this has been a great, and we actually may have to get some listeners on to ask the professor some more. Uh, this has been a good introduction to this. I know a, a little bit about this topic, and I find it fascinating myself. And one of the things that I, I would encourage our listeners to do, much like you, you just talked about, Jerry, is you don't know what you don't know. So exploring these topics is critical. That's one of the purposes of this show is to broaden horizons and expand perspective, and also really confront our own internal biases that we may have. Um, if the first reaction is to, to discount this uh, type of uh, topic after listening to these stories and listening to the impact that this can have, um, th- then, then th- that you, this perhaps isn't the show for you. <laughs> you might be listening to the wrong podcast. This is about tackling root cause issues and being an orchestrator that drives value in your organization. And if not you, then then who else is going to do it, right? So, Jerry, thanks so much for your time. On behalf of Scott, we, we both really appreciate you coming on the show today. We'd love to have you back in the near future. And uh, look forward to seeing you out there on LinkedIn some more. And uh, everybody listening, make sure you go uh, add add Jerry to your network. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you guys out there. And if you have any other questions, hit us up on engage at insidese.com. And uh, we appreciate your time. Jerry, thanks. Thanks, Scott. So thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us. To become an insider and amplify your journey, make sure you've subscribed to our show. If you have an idea for what Scott and Brian can cover in a future podcast or have a story to share, please email them at engage at insidese.com. You can also connect with them online by going to insidese.com, following them on Twitter, or sending them a LinkedIn request.